Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Nicholas Russo. Based in Aberdeen, Maryland, Nick is a Cisco technical leader, author, teacher, and programmer with a particular interest and expertise in DevOps. You can follow him on Twitter at NickRusso42518 and check out his website at njrusmc.net. I'm pleased to say Nick is joining today uh, the small group of authors who have become repeat guests on the podcast. I first interviewed him back in 2016, where we discussed his Cisco certification book, CCIE Service Provider Version 4, Written and Lab Exam Comprehensive Guide. And if that sounds like an obscure book to you, it is one of our best-selling books of all time. Uh, If if you've ever passed a really hard test, please write a book about it and publish it on LeanPub. You might do very well. Nick is appearing on the podcast today to talk about his new book, 50 Pieces of Gold, an Engineer's Musings on Business and Life. In the book, Nick talks about the 90% of things he writes about that aren't technology, uh, topics including business, time management, investing, and many other topics. I should note that Nick has also recorded an audiobook for 50 Pieces of Gold, which you can also get from LeanPub if you choose the audio package when you buy the book. In this interview, we're going to talk about what Nick's been up to in the last three years, his blog and his book, and at the end, we'll talk a bit about his experience as a writer. So thank you, Nick, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast again. Thanks, Len. Appreciate the uh, intro, and it's always good to be back. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, but we already uh, did that when you first appeared on the podcast. So, uh, yeah, what have you been up to for the last few years? Yeah, it's been a busy three years for sure. Um, You know, last we spoke, I think it was July of 2016, and I had a daughter on July 5th of that month. So it was probably just like a week after that. So I was a brand new father at the time. Uh, You know, when we spoke, I probably didn't know much about fatherhood. Uh, You know, three and a half years later, I've learned quite a bit there. I've got another baby on the way in February. So the family is growing. So there's obviously a a whole lot of uh, busyness there that we could go on forever about that. But, um, you know, the past three years, uh, from a professional and kind of technical standpoint, I've done a lot of writing. Uh, as you know, the the book I've sold on LeapHub initially, uh, huge success, but it was also my first book ever, my first ever kind of public thing, if you will. And since then, uh, I've done quite a bit more between blogs and uh, live and recorded training courses for a variety of different providers. Um, I've written a few other kind of just tinkering around books. And then the newest, my, you know, my third book is the 50 Pieces of Gold, the, the one we can talk about today. So yeah, it's been pretty busy. You know, last uh, summer, it was about I don't know, August timeframe in 2018, I started kind of a one-man business to do some of this training stuff. I figured, you know, I have a lot of technical knowledge and expertise that I think I can share and uh, have this be, just, you know, being quite frank, just another source of income for me and, and possibly something that can help me on my path to financial independence in the future. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a few questions about that. Um, I guess uh, the first one might be a little bit cheesy, but what's the number one thing you learned about parenting with your first child? I would say... A big mistake that I think I made was, you know, as I said, I was I was doing podcasts with LeanPub. I was uh, actually studying for a few different exams. I was uh, I was doing a lot of other things other than being a father in the earliest days. And I didn't really think it was that big of a deal because, you know, my, you know, the baby was very attached to my wife at the time. I was like, okay, whatever, you know, I'll just, I'll do the, I'll I'll do everything else that doesn't involve the baby. Uh, That was a foolish move um, because it took a long time for the baby to really warm up to me as a father. So it was hard for me to spend time with the baby and connect. And that didn't happen until she was almost two years old. Um, And in addition to the the, uh, emotional burden as a father that you feel when your daughter doesn't want to be around you, it's also very hard on my wife because it was hard for her to go and do anything. It was hard for her to go downstairs and go to the gym for an hour uh, because the baby just didn't trust me. So I would just uh, tell all the fathers out there, it's hard in the beginning, not just, you know, not because of the lack of sleep and all that, but you need to really make the effort to spend time with your your kids as soon as they're born so they learn to trust you. And I will definitely not be making that mistake uh, the second time around. And was there a particular kind of time that you spent with your daughter when you realized that you needed to spend more time with her? I mean, was there particular activities that you did or... Yeah, it was mostly playing. I mean, a lot of the time that I was spending with her early was more uh, chore-based, for lack of a better term, diapers and putting her to bed and changing and bathing and making food for and you know, things that aren't really fun. Uh, so I tried to make more time as like playing with blocks or making up games. You know, we made up this one game where we take like a big object like a toy or a ball and we shove it in our shirts and we just bump each other like we chest bump with these things in our shirts. It's kind of a stupid thing, but it was it was really fun. And that was like that was our thing for a long time. And that was kind of a, a big icebreaker for us. But again, you you can't do that with a three month old. It has to be, you know, the kid has to be kind of a little bit bigger to play a game like that. But uh, in the early days, I'm, I'm probably going to spend more time 
um, just playing with the baby, you know, playing with her legs or rolling a ball to her or just reading to her and just things that you don't really get a lot of feedback because it's such a young infant. They can't really interact with you on a very explicit level. Uh, but I'm going to try to be a little more involved early on so that hopefully my wife gets a little bit of a break, um, you know, rather than, you know, me being the workhorse in the background and her being the nurturer. Uh, I, I think those ro- blending those roles a little bit would be healthy for everyone. Yeah, well, congratulations on that, uh, which is uh, news to me, by the way, but um, it, it's just really wonderful to hear about your growing family. Um, speaking of big news, um, so you mentioned that you uh, have gotten into training, uh, particularly you've done you've done video training, into, including live training, um, uh, and you've done this for both O'Reilly and for Pluralsight. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that got started. Did you approach somebody or did somebody approach you? Uh, that's interesting. So in the in the O'Reilly case, uh, and for those who don't know, um, Safari, uh, you know, is now known as the O'Reilly live training platform. So, um, you know, back when it was kind of Safari-ish, you know, I had some contacts who had done work with uh, Cisco Press. So Pearson, there's a lot, the thing that's a little confusing is a lot of companies involved, but, you know, Pearson and Cisco have kind of combined to create a joint venture known as Cisco Press. And within Pearson, uh, Pearson once had a stake in O'Reilly. They sold that stake, but they still have kind of an operating role. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but I have contacts at Pearson. Um, I reached out to them and they said, hey, we think you'd be a good candidate to do some training. You know, I submitted a, fr- a few proposals on topics that I know well. Uh, those were accepted. Um, did a couple courses. They were well attended, high rated. And now they're like, okay, we want you to come back every month. So I use this as kind of a... Um, you know, once a month, I usually take a day off work in the middle of the week. I'll do, you know, a four hour live class. Um, it's one of those things that's exhausting, but satisfying, you know, talk, standing up and talking kind of at this rate at this volume for four hours straight and doing technical demos at the same time. I think that's exhausting for just about anyone. Um, but I enjoyed doing that. So that, that was kind of a, uh, you know, I reached out to them to inquire if they were interested. They said yes. And then we just kind of had a informal conversation with Pluralsight. It was a bit more formal, um, it was, you know, you go to the website, there's kind of a, uh, you go and fill out a form like a, hey, I want to teach, here's my skills, here's here's where I think I can be helpful. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, uh, one of their acquisition people will reach out to you, generally ask you what you're about to do kind of a phone screening to make sure you're a good kind of cultural fit. Then you'll do an audition basically. And I think this is actually really smart is they ask you to do, uh, I think it was a six to eight minute video teach them something new. So to teach a technical topic in that short amount of time, it's typically something very technically focused and say, hey, today I'm going to teach you how to configure uh, feature X on platform Y. Let's dive in. And then, you know, you do maybe a a couple PowerPoint slides with some animations. Then you dive into your live demo. You have to produce it. You have to do the audio. You have to do the video. Pluralsight wants to get an idea about, you know, whether you're frankly technically competent and also understand how to develop good quality audio and visual content. So that was, you know, I went through the, you know, no shortcuts path with Pluralsight. And then once the audition gets approved, you get assigned to uh, one of their internal kind of people managers, for lack of a better term. And then as you want to take on individual projects, you, you know, submit a proposal. Hey, I think this topic would be really great. Here's why I think it's great. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's how long it is. Here's the difficulty level. Uh, Here's when I can deliver it. And assuming they accept that proposal and like what you're trying to sell, then they'll, you know, they'll sign a deal with you. You'll get paid on completion. And then just like LeanPub, you'll get a fraction of the royalties based on viewership. Yeah, it's really interesting just to spell it out a little bit for people who listening who might people listening who might be a little bit confused about what we're talking about. So this kind of training is where you typically um, are probably at home in a home office or something like that. You're in front of your computer, either sitting or standing, and you're recording what's going on on the screen and potentially even recording yourself at the same time with your computer's camera. And you're demonstrating things on the computer to other people who are either watching a recording of it or who are watching it live. Um, and you uh, carry, take them through things step by step. And this is a very hard thing to do. Um, it's a very, well, let's put it this way. It's a very hard thing to get right. Um, so when you started doing this kind of thing, Nick, had you had experience doing it like for, for these professional companies who that's what they're dedicated to doing? Had you done it before? No. So the the specific act of doing recorded video training in a kind of high quality environment to include the production, the editing and the delivery. No, that was completely new. And frankly, it was kind of terrifying because, you know, not only do you need to have the technical expertise and be really on 
not, I don't say on script, but you need to be kind of on point with what you're saying. You need to be clear and concise, but you also need to be able to work the software. So using ScreenFlow or Camtasia or whatever you end up using, um, you know, aside from the few hundred dollars investment required, you need to learn how to use the tool effectively to be able to produce all your stuff. And sometimes as technical people, uh, at least for me, we te- I tended to shy away from learning those tools. Uh, I had all this knowledge, but I wasn't able to share it. So I decided, you know, one day I'm just going to spend a few hours. I'm going to go through the videos on it. I'm going to get some practice. And uh, I can tell you that when I did that audition for Pluralsight, it was actually kind of terrifying because I realized, you know, this is kind of a this is a, a make or break moment. You know, if I do this well, then I'm in and the the sky is the limit. But if I do this poorly and they see the audition and they're not happy with it, it's I don't there's not like an appeals process. You know, that's it. I can't do I can't do business here anymore. So I took that very seriously. And I would say that it took, you know, to produce that six to eight minutes probably took me about four hours total. Um, because I was being extremely diligent about it. Now, you know, after having done like 11 courses now and tens of hours of produced video, I've become very proficient, you know, the shortcuts and all that. But you're absolutely right. It It is difficult to do right. Um, it takes a lot of time, not just to do the, you know, technical content creation, but also the recording, the production and the delivery uh, certainly takes a lot of effort. Um, it's definitely taught me a lot about everything from time management to, uh, you know, running your own business because, you know, as an employee of a company, and I'm sure a lot of you at some point in your careers, even for those who are independent now, have worked for companies at some point, you know, and as an employee, you know, you'll get assigned a task, you'll do the task, your manager will have you move on something else. It's a relatively straightforward thing. But when you're the one setting the deadlines, collecting payments uh, in the United States, you have to make estimated tax payments. There's a lot of other things that kind of play into that whole, I guess, psyche of being an independent contractor and doing that kind of work. So the complexity is kind of multifaceted there, uh, and it's been a huge learning experience for me over the past year and a half. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little, talk to you a little bit about um, creating that business in just a moment, but uh, yeah, just so people might get, get, get a bit of a, who haven't done it before, get a bit of a flavor of uh, why it might take four hours to record a six-minute video. When you're recording stuff that you're doing on your computer, you suddenly realize how much fussing about you do all the time. Uh, so an errant mouse movement, um, uh, a page taking too long to load, things like that become really obvious when you're trying to record a good video, showing people how to do things. And in having done this a little bit myself, you know, it, it really does come down to like fractions of a second edits that make or break a video. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, just to, you know, when you say pages load too slow or maybe you're scrolling through a document trying to find something, you know, a plural site, just to give an example, uh, they frown upon any pauses in your video that are greater than one second. So if you're waiting for a page to load and it takes three seconds, you're expected to do the appropriate either cutting out of that wait time or applying a fast forward over that section. Um, so you have to go and do all those kind of manual edits unless you outsource it. So uh, like you said, Lana, it can be very time consuming. And, and just for those listening, uh, I would say my rule of thumb is about to produce one hour takes about 30 hours. Uh, and that's, you know, everything from proposing it to selling it to writing the code, developing the slides, recording Recording, production, editing, uh, that whole thing is about 30 to 1. So if you sign up for a two-hour course, you should plan on spending about 60 hours uh, developing it. And that's been a pretty good rule of thumb for me over the past you know, year and a half of doing these courses. Um, you just need to make sure you plan ahead and you know, figure out if that sounds like a, a good ratio to you. Yeah, and the, uh, the good news is um, that the tools available uh, these days are amazing. I, you mentioned Camtasia. That's the one that we've been using lately. It takes – there's – you know there's some onboarding and it takes some time getting used to it but the the fine control over audio and video and the effects that you can add and things like that are are just amazing um and so it is it, the fact that it's doable at all is is quite something uh and so you uh decided to create your own business um in it so you were doing all these activities and then you created a business on top of that i'd just like to ask you and you, since this is one of the things that you write about why did you decide to to do that so the reason I did that, I mean, when I, you know, when I wrote my first book with LeanPub, um, and it's, it's a little bit, you know, again, this is probably a little bit country specific, but when I wrote my first business with LeanPub, um, you know, the book was owned by me as a person. Um, you know, I, I wrote the book, I, I got royalties from it, I, I claimed those as income on my personal tax return, and that was fine. But I realized that at some point, you know, if I want to continue to be a writer and a blogger and a content producer and a podcaster and whatever other things I want to do, it might make sense to 
create a business to kind of be the front of all those activities uh, for a few reasons. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, I'm just a, you know, I'm a one man shop. I just created a simple uh, sole proprietorship. So I'm not an LLC. I'm not a corporation. I'm just, I'm still one guy. Uh, my taxes haven't changed a whole lot, but the difference is now I can put a name uh, that isn't my name in front of the business. So I just called it loop free consulting to start out. Uh, that gives me kind of a springboard to do consulting work in the future and you know, have checks addressed to that, you know, potentially have employees and I can always restructure later. Uh, in the state of Maryland, for example, that whole process cost me, I think, $115. So it was very inexpensive. I did it all online. Um, I felt like this was a good way to get started. And the other advantage is that now I can internally, I can differentiate between my full-time job income and my business income. So I have another set of books and I can say, okay, this month I've got my lean pub royalties on the third. I got my plural site royalties. I got my O'Reilly royalties. I got this other cash payment from this other thing I did. And then I can have kind of a clear accounting of all that. Um, and I keep it separate from my personal business so that I can clearly tell where I'm succeeding and where I'm not. So the business is really just kind of a wrapper or an abstraction in front of me as a person. You know, I don't have employees and I don't do a lot of the kind of hardcore business activities. Like I don't have a company car. I don't have, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of uh, expensive assets. It's just not relevant for the work that I do. Um, but yeah, the, the creation of the business was more of a formality than anything. I mean, of course, it's cool uh, to do that. But, um, you know, I'm still very focused on, you know, the delivery of the product uh, rather than the administration of the business. And that was actually something I wrote about in the book, Len, was, uh, you know, when you're a small business, and this is probably true for LeanPub as well, is you want to focus on improving your platform or your product or your service. You want to focus less on, you know, the nonstop administration of the business. Now, I think that as you grow and as you get employees and as you become a, a multinational organization, then that balance may shift a little bit. But most definitely for the small uh, business owners out there, I would recommend just keep your head down and keep doing things that bring value to your customers. And I think you're going to see your business grow just naturally if, as long as you keep your priorities straight. Yeah, I think we'll get to talk about some of those things uh, in the next segment uh, in this episode. Uh, but before we do that, I'd like to talk about another thing you've been doing in the last couple of years, which is conference talks. Um, and there's a great one that people can watch on YouTube about introducing automation and efficiency into a bureaucracy. Yeah, that's right. So I gave this talk in May of 2019. So it was about six or seven months ago. And it was at a conference called Interop and it was in Las Vegas. So one thing uh, in my past, you know, for, for most of my adult life, I've done work for the U.S. government, either active duty in the military or as a contractor supporting them. And if there's any one thing that's true about the government, I think no matter where you work, especially the U.S. federal government, is that it's just enormous. Uh, everything moves very, very slowly and there are uh, infinite levels of bureaucracy at every stage. And one of the challenges for me was how can I introduce automation in this environment uh, in a meaningful way without causing problems? And I think, you know, one thing I really harp on in that presentation is it's really important to understand the difference between business drivers in a regular commercial company versus a bureaucracy. Because in a regular company, you have goals like we want to either grow the company, we want to improve profits, we want to reduce costs. Uh, and reducing costs often means reducing headcount. But in a government organization, a large organization is a respected organization. So getting rid of people just reduces power from the group. So you need to do automation in a way that doesn't reduce the number of people and that doesn't take away their jobs, for lack of a better term, but rather transforms the work that they do. Um, it, it's actually a kind of a very delicate balance. And I was able to come up with a technical solution that managed to not take anyone's job away but still introduce improvements um, but but at the same time, not rocking, rocking the boat too much. And I realize that can be a, a really difficult challenge. And I think for a lot of small companies, that just sounds completely absurd. But when you deal with a company, I think there's like a million people that work for the federal government. You tend to end up with these solutions that are technically suboptimal, but they are operationally effective for that given environment. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting talk. Um, anyone interested in this problem, I would definitely recommend you you give it a give it a watch, and I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes or in the transcription for this episode. But the very specific story is 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 told. It's got a very good structure because it begins with just Nick presenting you with this problem, which was basically there was a group of people that were doing a kind of work that involved copying and pasting IP addresses and other details into documents, and then into other documents, and into other documents, and into other documents, and then by the the time the final result, which is an email with attachments, I believe, has been sent, there was a 33% chance that there would be an error. 
in that document somewhere. And then resolving that error involved calling upon the resources of sort of people with high-level expertise. And so what, what's happened is a typo has scaled up to a really big problem because it's buried somewhere in this document that's been produced and passed around between multiple people. And that when, when, when you first proposed this solution, you were you say you were laughed at. And, and one thing you realized was it was partly because what it would have been, what you were basically proposing was something unfamiliar to people, but also something that would involve a lot of lost jobs. And ultimately, the way you succeeded in getting this change done was partly, which, which brought that failure rate or that potential error rate down to 2% was by saying, I'm going to, I'm going to improve the process in ways that do not involve taking away people's jobs, but rather by minimizing stress and error. Yep. That's exactly right, Len. And, uh, you know, just ironically enough, the, uh, some of the technology I used in that solution is not so different from some of the things that LeanPub does behind the scenes. It's kind of similar where you can provide, you know, kind of some raw data or a manuscript of sorts, and then LeanPub handles the rendering, the distribution, et cetera. And it's kind of similar there is, you know, supply the raw input, put it into the big machine, out comes the, the PDF and all the the configurations that you need. Uh, so the manual copy pasting only happens once at the very beginning. And then you end up with this nice document that's readable and it looks good and people are happy with the alt, the, uh, the end product. Yeah. And uh, part of the story also was um, you coming up with a way of getting not, not so much around, but through the bureaucracy, but one, one feature of which is lots of committees and lots of paperwork. And you did this by anticipating the need for paperwork. So you would just approach, you know, the next level senior person with everything already done and all you needed was their signature so they could walk away. Yeah, exactly. And and this is I think this is even true in the commercial space is when you you know, when, when someone needs to sign off on something, the more comfortable that person is with making the decision and the easier that decision is to approve, the more likely it is to be approved. So when you tell a very busy manager or at least someone who thinks they're busy, you know, whether they are or not doesn't really matter. But if they think they're busy and they think their time is important and you show up with a, a couple papers and say, Hey, good morning. John Smith, I've got, you know, I've got these documents. Uh, here's our new plan. Here's what we tested. We're already using it. It's working well. I just need you to, you know, I need your approval for these specific steps and we can continue executing. Here's our plan for the next three months. And, you know, maybe they ask you a few questions to make sure they understand it. And then that process ends. And uh, in this particular case, um, the government official was someone I knew pretty well. I'd worked with them in the past. We generally had a, a trust and a respect for each other. So it wasn't terribly difficult, but there were obviously many other government officials, uh, competing government officials, for lack of a better term, who saw this as more of a threat. So this is where the tension kind of started to build. But once the solution came out, I think some of that tension kind of melted away and people saw that the solution was really effective. And I think the other advantage is even though there were no jobs lost, we also realized that this was growing so quickly and becoming so popular that we would even – even with the automation, we would still need more people to operate. So everyone seemed to come out ahead with this solution. So I was pretty proud of it. And you know, at the end of the day, from a technical perspective, as I said before, it wasn't like a terribly impressive solution. And in that talk, uh, I didn't focus too much on the exact technology. I only gave kind of a brief overview because I don't think it's terribly interesting. It was more of the application of a solution to a specific organizational problem. And that's what I was trying to highlight in the talk. Yeah, and one of the uh, you you talk um, in the talk about uh, the differences between bureaucracies and large enterprises. But one of the one of the big similarities that they have, uh, and I've got, I've had a little bit of experience with this myself, with doing kind of a version of enterprise sales, is that anytime you try to introduce a new process, that's probably displacing a process or a product that someone's career is tied to. Yeah, absolutely. And this can be, you know, it's kind of the uh, innovators dilemma type approach. Is you know, do we do we cannibalize ourselves and and, and tolerate the risk from that? Or do we risk can't, having someone else cannibalize that from us? And it's always kind of a difficult thing. And, you know, there's been entire books written on that topic. But uh, in this particular case, uh, you know, again, in government, a lot of organizations are insulated by charters and policies. So it's not like some other better, more effective company could take in and take this business away. That's not even a threat. Um, but the similarity is still there. And in our case, it would have just been continued poor performance. So there was really very little to lose by improving it, especially uh, under the pretext of not having anyone lose their jobs. So that was once once people were sold on that and once people were sold on, hey, you know, all the knowledge you already have is still relevant. We're just asking you to change the process a little bit in how you build your products uh, people generally were, were, you know, they accepted that. 
Just before we move on to the next part of the interview where we talk about your book, um, I think one of the reasons this talk resonated with me so much and this challenge resonated with me so much personally was that um, I used to be an investment banker in a former life for my sins. Um, and uh, I remember one of the, the most important of the many things I learned doing that job, one of the most important things I learned was never always copy and paste when you can. Um, and it sounds trivial, but I remember a colleague seeing me sort of looking at a financial model that I'd been developing and then typing out some numbers into a, into a presentation. And he said, what are you doing? Like, if you can copy and paste, copy and paste. And, you know, sometimes the reason was sometimes you were doing this work when you hadn't slept for 40 hours. Sometimes you were doing this work when you were told, I need this in five minutes. And the inter, like, Copying and pasting reduces the possibility of error and increases the confidence that you'll have when you're presenting stuff dramatically. So although this might sound like a trivial kind of life hack, like it's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, and this is something that we see a lot. I think, um, you know, especially in technology, there's a, there's a habit of, you know, it, it would be two seconds faster for me to just type out this IP address or whatever, rather than copy paste it. But I, you know, I was just in a, uh, it's actually kind of, kind of coincidental just yesterday somebody was um you know having some errors on a specific technical solution and i said you know you've got a lot of different variable inputs here and i realize you could just type it out but i said just take the extra time and copy paste it um and the only way that's going to cause a problem is if your initial data source was wrong which is unlikely so you're much less likely to, to suffer through the troubleshooting which is almost always harder than just doing it right the first time oh that's so true i mean i <clears throat> excuse me sorry um that's so true. Uh, I use that in emails as well. For example, I will never type out a person's name. I always find a source and copy and paste it. Uh, and that way you can have confidence when you send that you know it's right. And uh, it again, it's, it's one of those things where you, you almost have to fight against yourself to do it every time. But if you do do it every time, it will make things a lot better. And, and actually, like it will save you time in the end because you won't have to recover from mistakes. Yep. Moving on to your, your new book, 50 Pieces of Gold, and Engineer's Musings on Business and Life. I've been really looking forward to this conversation because we just get to cover a lot of topics because your book covers a lot of topics. But before we go on to talk about that, I was wondering if you could, I was wondering if you could talk about the title. Yeah, hold on one second. <clears throat> yeah, so the, the title was um, kind of an interesting one. So there was a... You know, a book, I think it was from the 1920s. It was called uh, The Richest Man in Babylon. And in the book, there's a, uh, a character, a spear maker, who, you know, does a job for the king and the king gives him 50 pieces of gold. And he goes to a banker because he doesn't need so much money. He doesn't know what to do with it, but he wants to be responsible. He doesn't want to just blow it. So he goes to ask this banker, you know, about what to do with this money and, oh, 50 pieces of gold. Oh, you know, and there was a kind of a, a recurring theme for a few pages in the book. And the reason I chose that name is because the book is composed of 50 blog posts that I wrote throughout the calendar year, 2019. So it was about 52 weeks in a year. I wrote 50 blogs, you know, roughly once a week-ish. And each one of those blogs can be <clears throat> read out loud in about two and a half minutes. So they're very, very short. It's a little bit longer than like one screen length. And what I was going for here is I wanted to have kind of short bursts of useful and practical information that isn't really technical. So I'm generally known as a technical writer, as a technologist, as a technical trainer, just as a technical guy in general. And I want people to see the other side of me. Uh, I won't call it the softer side because I do have some pretty hard opinions, but the the personal side of me, we'll call it, where I talk about other things, about my own personal techniques for um, – time management and I talk a little bit about investing in my business and mistakes that I've made, mistakes from my past, mistakes from my military days and even some things I've done well. So I said, you know, I've written all these blogs and it was really well received. I think people enjoyed the fact that they could just casually read through a blog in two or three minutes, maybe come away with something. Uh, they don't need to make some big upfront investment in technology. They don't need to come in with six years of experience to even understand what I'm saying. It's kind of meant to be consumed by many people. And I said, you know, it would not be that complicated for me to assemble all these blogs into a book, uh, put it on LeanPub at a, at a low price, and then narrate it as well. Uh, I happen to be a big fan of audiobooks. Um, I think uh, this is actually, I, I wrote a blog about this in my book. And uh, last year, I measured the number of hours that I listened to an audiobook, and it was greater than 900. So to put that into perspective, uh, that's more than 10% of the total hours in a year. So that's more than 2.4 hours a day every day on average. Um, so I, I like to read a lot, 
I've, you know, audiobooks is the mechanism by which I do that. So I figured it was only appropriate that I offer an audio narration of this book as well for other people who may want to learn that way. And I think it came out to be about two hours and 15 minutes total length. Yeah, I'm looking forward to asking you about your process for that uh, in the next part of the interview. But um, sticking on, on, on the content of the book, uh, you write about at the beginning very seriously about how you, quote, want to change the way advice is shared, end quote. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and why, why advice is so important to you. So I think, um, and this is, I think we are, gen as, a, as a society, I think we are trending in the right direction here, is that I think it's general, especially for technology people, I think it's generally important for people like us to talk about the other things that are beyond technology in our lives, um, not, you know, not just the success stories about how we got to where we were and how hard we work. I don't, I don't think that's terribly interesting. But I wanted to... Uh, you know, rather than write uh, what I will call a very dense kind of self-help book where it, you know, details, you know, specific plans and strategies to overcome problems, I decided to take a more concise approach and share advice in the form, oftentimes in the form of a story. And I would say out of these 50 blogs, probably 30 or 35 of them are based on personal stories and things I've seen, things I've done, things I've observed. And the reason I do that is I like to spend, you know, maybe a minute or so talking about my own story, let people kind of come to their own conclusions about what went right and what went wrong. And then oftentimes I end my blog post or one of the chapters in the book with, you know, a question or something like, you know, what do you think about this? Or, you know, here's my opinion. I'm not telling you what to think, but, you know, where do you stand? And I think that sharing advice that way, it becomes, and this is a term I use in the book a little bit, it's more descriptive instead of prescriptive. So I don't want to prescribe how people think. I don't want to tell you what to think. I'm not going to tell you right or wrong. But I want to give you some context around how I came to the conclusions that I did. And I want to do that in very tight, short ways. Um, one thing, you know, I like to read self-help books. I like all kinds of books. Uh, but one thing I've noticed about a lot of self-help books in general is that they tend to be very long. They tend to be wordy. And you usually have to make a pretty sizable time investment to get through it. Uh, an audio, a typical audiobook might be six to ten hours. And, yeah, there's six to ten hours of content there. But I often wonder to myself, you know, what, could this be compressed? Could this be shorter? Could I get kind of a, a better signal-to-noise ratio, for lack of a better term? So this book is my attempt or – uh, my idea of how we can share advice in a more concise format to give people kind of a, a maximum ROI on their time. It's really interesting you mentioned that, uh, the, the, the combination of time and uh, thinking about advice. So you've got a, a very and then personal story. So you've got a really good one in your book where you talk about how it was 4 p.m. on a Friday and you received a non-urgent email from a fellow engineer um, who you, I guess you didn't personally know, but he's asking for help. And you decided to just jump on it right away. Yep, exactly. And this was this is one of those stories that would would definitely not make a good Hollywood movie because it's not a terribly exciting one, uh, and nobody nobody got yelled at or anything. But uh, yeah, exactly like you said. You know, I didn't know the guy. He shot out an email to a pretty wide mailer. Uh, he needed help with something. Um, I knew it was kind of a a niche technology that a lot of other people didn't know, so it was unlikely anyone else was gonna answer him. And not to mention it was Friday at 4 p.m. So it was even more unlikely that anyone was going to answer him. So I decided, let me just call the guy. His number, his number is in his signature. So I just called him up. We talked it out for about 10 minutes. I told him what he needed and, and that was the end of it. And I really thought to myself, you know, why, you know, I could just wait till Monday. It's probably not a big deal. He's about to go home. The customer is not going to know. But the question I asked myself is what possible benefit either for him or for the customer would be gained by waiting? And I argue that the answer is nothing. There's there's no reason to wait, especially because I could solve this problem now rather than add it to my ever-growing backlog of things to do. Uh, it could end up lost in the noise or I could just call them right now and handle it. And this is just a, a part of me and my personality is uh, some people call it the one-touch policy. You know, like when I open my mailbox and I pick up a letter – I touched it once. I don't want to put it down until I'm done with it. So I'm going to open it. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to pay the bill. I'm going to do whatever. And then I'm going to be done with it. Um, so I try to you know, follow that in my personal life. Now, some people may have different opinions on that. Um, I just like to show examples of uh, some real life examples. Some are more exciting than others uh, about how I apply some of the principles that govern how I live. One thing you also write about is assigning a, a specific money value to your time when you're deciding what tasks to do yourself or what to pay other people to do? 
Yeah, and this is, you know, and this has been something I've done for a long time. Even even before I really had a, a firm understanding about investing and, and money in general, is I try to, you know, estimate, um, you know, put a value on my time. So let's just say that I think my time is worth fifty dollars an hour. Um, you know, if I have to fix something in my house and I think it's about two hours of work and a professional wants to charge me a thousand dollars for it, there's a good chance I'm going to do that myself because I think, you know, in that two hours it would, it would cost me roughly $100 worth of time uh, versus a thousand dollars that the contractor wants. Now, of course there's exceptions. I'm not physically able. I don't have the tools. I can't do every job in the house, but this was a pretty good, um, approach. So just to give you two examples, um, you know, I had plumbers come and do some work uh, I think I paid them $1,100 for four hours and it was highly skilled work that I absolutely could not have done myself. So I paid them. Uh, I also had a flooring guy come and do a flooring job. I don't remember the cost, but it was relatively inexpensive and he did a good job and I knew it would have taken me longer. So it actually would have been more expensive for me to do it myself, assuming you put a, uh, a money value on your time. And I think this becomes even more important as a, <clears throat> excuse me, as a business person because you have to measure the opportunity cost of making that decision. So I could be recording content. I could be, uh, you know, editing content. I could be writing a proposal. I could be writing code. I could be doing any number of other things. Uh, or I could be putting vinyl planks down on, on concrete slab. Um, you really have to weigh what's the best, you know, what's the best use of my time. And I find that using money as an abstraction or a metric to try to approximate the value of time is a, is a pretty good approach. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic, and I confess it's one I haven't spent a lot of my own time thinking about, but I, it's one of the reasons I enjoyed reading your book. With a, One interesting way that you approach this kind of paradox is by invoking the concept of the time value of money and in investing, which is basically, if I could have $100 now or $100 in a year, $100 now is worth more than $100 in a year, assuming inflation is positive. Um, or, well, I mean, inflation is inherently positive, but if there's a 10% in interest rate uh, that I can access, then the equivalent of $100 now is $110 a year from now. Um, right. But when it comes to your own time, assuming you kind of advance in skill and let's say seniority, your an hour of time in the future of yours is worth more than an hour of time in of your time now. But that's only true if you are investing time now in advancing yourself. Yeah. And it's a little bit confusing to kind of think about. And I think, I, you know, the example I used in my book was, uh, I think, working on my car. And, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I like to say that my time was worth less. And by wor I don't mean worthless, but worth space less, two, two words. Um, so I would work on my car and I would spend two hours to do, you know, $50 worth of repairs. Or I'd spend two hours to change the oil, which was a $30 job back then. And, you know, I would probably never do that today because it's just too much time and my earning capacity has increased. Um, I could do a lot more in an hour than save 15 bucks these days. So that's kind of how I look at it. Now, I think obviously, you know, as we get older and as we approach our 60s and 70s, you know, that, that may change again because you'll have all the time in the world when you're done working. But where I'm really going with this is so long as your uh, capacity to earn is increasing or you're, be, you know, you're succeeding in whatever way that you measure yourself. So whether it's, you know, earning more money or becoming more famous or singing more songs at karaoke night, like whatever, you know, you could be spending time doing those things. Um, so that way I see your, your future time is almost, uh, more valuable and it would make sense to save yourself that time in the future. Um, you know, just another you know personal example, I've got a baby coming soon. And, uh, for me, and this may seem like common sense is there are a lot of things I'm trying to do now. So like this book, for example, uh, I wasn't intending to do this until January or February, but you know, with the news of the baby, you know, seven months ago or whatever, I was like, okay, let me think about what my time is going to be worth. And like I said, towards the beginning of the podcast, the time spent with my daughter is going to be weighed very heavily and worth more to me than the time I'm spending doing uh, content and stuff like that for, for some of the reasons I talked about. So I kind of see that as, you know, so long as I'm growing and I think that my future time Time is going to be more valuable than my than the same amount of time today. Then I want to try to bias my decisions to buy myself time in the future. Speaking of time and money, and just to give a sense of the range of subjects that you cover in the book, um, one post that you have is about uh, the rising cost of university education, particularly in the United States. Um, and I know you have a, a I believe you have a bachelor of science in, in computer science, so you got a formal four year 
a university degree in computer science. Um, if you were starting out now with the intention of having the same career that you've that you've got, would you spend four years in university getting a formal degree? Yeah, this is a difficult. <clears throat> it's a difficult topic and a difficult question because I feel like the the education I received was excellent. Um, if I recall, I paid. I paid roughly twenty five thousand u s dollars per year, and this was between two thousand four and two thousand eight. So that comes out to be about one hundred thousand u s dollars, which is no small feat, especially for like an eighteen to twenty two year old. Um, I managed to get through that with less than twenty thousand dollars in debt. So there was a good amount of scholarships there. There was also some support from the u s. military because I was serving at the time. Um, had some savings bonds, uh, a little bit from family. But I did graduate with a bit of debt that I managed to pay off quickly. Um, that reality is just not a reality for many people uh, my age, even even people in their thirties now find themselves uh, not in that nice of a situation. But to answer your question more directly, I would <clears throat> I would seriously consider some of the alternative uh, schools out there. So for for example, like a Lambda school, I think they're called. I don't know much about them, but they have basically the equivalent of like a nine-month uh, like coding training program, a boot camp type thing. And it's a, an income sharing agreement where you don't pay up front but once you get a job that pays over a certain amount, like say a job over $50,000, then you pay them a fixed percentage of your annual income. So for example, let's say you get a job after graduating that pays exactly $50,000 and you owe them, let's say 20%, then you would just take 20% of 50, which is 10. So you'd pay them $10,000 a year for the next two years and you basically walk away you know, having spent money that you earned so you never ended up in debt. Uh, I think those programs are pretty brilliant because I think they address the debt problem. And it's more of a – I almost – you know, somebody mentioned this. I thought it was a pretty brilliant approach. It's almost like going to a venture capitalist and getting an equities investor versus a debt investor. You know, so you're not, you're not taking on debt to fund your venture. You're partnering with someone who's like, I want a, I, I, you know, I want a fraction of your profits. I don't want you to pay me now. Pay me once you start making money and you have a product, for lack of a better term. So I think that's a really smart approach. Uh, my personal opinion is I think we're going to see more of that style of approach as we go forward. We may even start to see that with trade schools and other skill-based schools that are not traditional college. Uh, maybe we'll even start to see it with traditional colleges. Um, my wife and I are still taking a pretty conservative approach. You know, we have the appropriate uh, tax advantaged accounts for our daughters. Um, we are populating those. You know, uh, the U.S. government recently passed a law to where the money used in those accounts can be spent on a wider variety of schools, which I guess is a good thing. Uh, we'll see how that ex you know how that continues to expand over the next couple decades. Um, but yeah, the cost is the cost is really just it, it's a huge. It's a big challenge, I think, for young people because you know the way I you know, and you said you were an investment banker, so you know when you're 18 years old and you go and you take on a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt, you have no collateral, you have no ability to repay, and you're really banking hard on getting a great job five years in the future. Um, so there's like a lot of things right off the bat that make that would make any lender skeptical, at least in my opinion. Um, and I feel like there's got to be a better approach there. And you, this is a bit of a selfish question because I agreed with everything you said about it. But um, uh, why do you think that tuition costs have gone up so much in the United States recently? Yeah, so I have a I have a colleague, and she earned a PhD in mathematics uh, in the United States, and she's a couple of years younger than I am. And you know, we're not that close, but we had a brief conversation a few months ago, maybe about a year ago, and. You know, she teaches at a college, and I believe she's an adjunct, uh, and that's where I got some. You know, some of my opinions about adjuncts uh, in that book are are based on talking to her. Um, it seems like a lot of it is based on administration and administrator costs. So, kind of what we talked about earlier in the the administration of a business is, you know, a lot of these schools. I think, uh, and again, this is kind of from her mo mo mostly her observations more than mine. Is there are a lot of administrators and you know basically non educators on the payroll that are at these colleges. Um, that need to be paid to do the administration. And I think the result of that is we are seeing kind of a, a lots of managers and not a lot of educators. So we're seeing class sizes increase and we're also seeing a lot more adjuncts and associate professors, uh, professors rather than full-time tenured ones because tenured professors are obviously expensive. Um, you know, adjuncts are kind of like disposable contractors and, you know, from a business perspective, it looks really attractive on paper when you have people like that because you can discard them when the times are tough and you can surge up when the times call for it. Um, so I, I feel like 
I feel like running colleges that way is is a little bit orthogonal to the goal of providing education. Um, you know, time will tell to see if that's really the right approach. Um, but you know, when I was in school, you know, the class sizes were were pretty small. Uh, I can remember just the, you know, the offices upon offices. There were a lot of professors and not a whole lot of administrators. You know, I haven't really set foot on a college campus in about. 15 years. So I'm, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you exactly how it is. That's more like 10 years, but I still couldn't tell you exactly what it looks like today. Um, but from what I'm hearing from people, generally we're seeing a lot more of basically overhead people that are becoming, uh, cost drains basically for these organizations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, it's, uh, I call the phenomenon admin capture. Uh, and it really is the case that a lot of these institutions, many of which are, are public, uh, have administrators that uh, reproduce, you know, more administrators. Uh, and uh, one of the perverse outcomes of this is uh, the devaluation of teaching itself and research. And this is one of the reasons that the, the phenomenon of the growth in the proportion of adjunct professors uh, has happened, which is that an, an adjunct professor is typically, it's a, I mean, it's better than nothing, but if you're an ambitious person who wanted to be a tenured professor and you find yourself in the position where you're teaching twice as many classes as a tenured professor is, and you're all, sometimes not even really allowed to do research, you're stuck in limbo forever because you can't advance your career because you don't have the time or the permission to do research. And this is all done to keep costs down. But what it means is that students have less, there, there are fewer people on the campus who are actually engaged in research. And there are fewer touch points between students and people engaged in research. And it's just terrible for everybody. Yep, I agree. Another thing you write about is that busy is the new lazy. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this is, um, <clears throat> I think it was Warren Buffett who said it. I can't remember exactly, but I think we've all kind of seen when you're trying to have a, like you're at work or you're dealing with someone, uh, even family members, and I'm guilty of, of being lazy in this way myself, especially with my mother, is someone wants to talk to you or they need to talk about something of substance, of strategic value. And but you're just too busy to deal with them. But in reality, the work that you're doing, the busy work, is exactly that. It's just made up work that could easily be put aside. And the example I use in my book is, you know, I've worked with people who uh, they'll go on travel. And in my opinion, when you're on travel, I like to be laser focused on the customer or the uh, coworker or whoever I'm supporting. You know, if I got on a plane to come see you, I want to focus on seeing you not doing all the other stuff I could do at home. And sometimes these people will, you know, instead of showing up at the job site at eight in the morning, they'll show up at 10 uh, and they'll be on conference calls all day. And it's like, well, if you were going to be on conference calls all day, why'd you even come? Um, so I feel like, I feel like those people can, can reasonably be classified as lazy because they're avoiding doing the hard work that needs doing. They don't want to have the crucial conversations. They don't want to, uh, do the strategic planning or the other important things that require them to actually think. Because I think we'll all agree that, you know, dialing into back-to-back -back meetings, uh, doing emails for three hours every morning, writing reports, those, for the most part, those can be very mindless activities. And when we fill our schedule with those things, instead of having the conversations and doing the work that has real strategic value, we really cheapen the meaning of work and we cheapen the meaning of busy. Uh, and that's why when we say busy is the new lazy, we, we say that we're busy, but in reality, we're just making work for ourselves because we don't want to do the things that really need doing. Yeah. One, one image that you, that you have in the book that I really love because I've encountered it so many times is um, the kind of person who puts on a show of being really busy and productive by doing emails in a meeting. You're wasting everybody's time, including your own. You're not being productive. You're not being busy. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, especially in, uh, in government, we, we tend to see this a lot. I mean, I've been in, you know, meetings with, with even high level people trying to have strategic planning conversations and, you know, 80% of the people are pecking away at their laptops. And I'm wondering, you know, what could you possibly be doing right now that's more important than this conversation? But, you know, as a, as a low level guy, I can't just come out and say that and force everyone to shut their lids. But if I could, I would for sure. Another thing you write about is um, how, quote, zero-sum thinking is the scourge of modern business relationships, end quote. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah, and I think this is more of a, uh, in order for me to win, you have to lose type thing. And, you know, the zero-sum thinking kind of summarized there. So I, I talk about, like, for example, some of these uh, business deals I've done with, with Pluralsight and O'Reilly and everyone else. And even with LeanPub, um, you know, as you know, you know, when I write a book or when anyone writes a book for LeanPub, the book sells, 
Uh, the author gets a fraction of the price, the sales price. LeanPub gets a fraction of the sales price. The the customer gets a book they wanted. Hopefully, they get some enjoyment or some knowledge out of it. And all three parties involved in that transaction win. Oh, and the government wins too because the sale of that book generated economic activity, which is taxed. So really, everyone involved has won. Um, you know, same thing for uh, online training. It's the same effect. And when there is more. When there's more capital moving, when there's money moving and there's transactions being made and there's customers buying things and there are suppliers selling things and there are partners working on things together like authors in LeanPub or whatever, then I think everyone can generally win. And there are really aren't any losers. Now, if you look kind of wider scope, you might be thinking, what about competition? You know, for example, the books that I'm writing, what about competing books or substitute products or alternative choices? that people have. I mean, yes, if you want to look at competition in that perspective, you know, it may be unlikely that a customer will buy both products. But in general, I think that if you go into every business engagement with the mindset that there's going to be some kind of zero sum or I have to lose in order for you to win or vice versa attitude, then that's generally what you're going to see. Um, and when I do business, I always, I, I only ever do business when there are clear winners all around. And there have been some opportunities in the past where um, I clearly could have won at someone else's expense. And there have been times when I've been solicited to do work for other people when clearly I would have lost. You know, for example, uh, delivering, uh, you know, doing a whole lot of work for one-tenth the, the cost that I would normally make from it. Uh, and in that case, I'm losing and I'm being taken advantage of. So I try to look for those deals and I try to avoid them even if it's, uh, even if it's not a lot of work because number one, I, I generally don't want to do business with people like that. And I truly believe that good businesses understand that winning, you know, I call it win together. And that's actually one of the, uh, company values inside of my company, uh, Cisco. But I think it even expands outside of the company when you start to look at, um, you know, different products and you look at them in a different light. And in the book, you know, there are people online who also offer training on the same topics I do. Um, but a lot of us are careful not to start a price war and we're careful not to flame each other online because a lot of us agree that it's just not productive. And me personally, you know, when I want to learn a new technology, oftentimes I'm going to buy multiple resources. I might buy some video training. I might buy books. I might buy all these other multiple things because they all combine together to give me a variety of perspectives on a given technology. And, um, you know, and I think that's useful. Now, for some products or services like a gym membership, it's unlikely you're going to have somebody that buys multiple gym memberships. So again, in some cases, I understand the need for competition. But I think especially in the technical training space, um, there is a lot of coexistence and complementary products that can that can all exist together and be useful. Yeah, thanks for that great explanation. It's, it's interesting. It reminds me of um, an example of, uh, I guess, winning winning together that's come up on this podcast a few times in the self-publishing world and related to LeanPub was we had an author years ago who discovered his book had been translated into another language and the person was selling the book, making money off of it. And instead of getting angry, he took the attitude and trying to stop it. He took the attitude that, well, this what this person has actually done, if I think about it from a pragmatic rather than getting personally angry about it level, is that they've introduced my book to a whole new market and me. And so when he wrote his next book, he contacted the person who'd done the pirate translation and said, hey, why don't we work together this time? He had great, great sales uh, in a whole new market that he wouldn't have had for his for his new book. And so often taking this attitude of like trying to see, you know, how you can how you can all benefit together is not um, Pollyanna ish can be very practical. Um, And so there, there are about, uh, you know, 47 other things we could talk about that you wrote about in your book, but I'll leave that to uh, listeners to go and buy your book and, and discover for themselves. It's, it's really good. Um, so just moving on to the next part of the interview where we talk about your experience as an author. Um, so you're, you've written about um, your experience with your, with your first book, uh, and you wrote, uh, quote, The book is roughly 3,000 pages in length. This was my biggest mistake. In reality, I wrote four or five books and should have sold them individually or as a discounted volume set, end quote. Uh, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you came to that determination. Yeah, I think, um, well, for for first thing, uh, you know, the the word lean pub, you know, the the key word in lean pub is lean and a 3,000 page book delivered all at once is like the exact opposite of lean. Um, so even, um, you know, even getting it into the lean pub platform seemed a little bit 
out of place. But I think that the thing is, you know, and as you as you've probably seen, you know, the price of a 3000 page highly technical book is going to be generally high. And when you're, you know, when you're looking for new books to buy, and you see a bunch of books for 10, 20, $30, and then you see one for two or $300, you're immediately turned off just based on that huge price. And also, um, the book was very targeted at specific people going for a, a relatively niche certification, where I think, if I had broken it up into smaller books at, you know, five books at one fifth the cost, let's say, so five $40 books or $60 books, whatever, and say, hey, this book is on technology A, this book's on technology B, but just keep it generic. And then maybe in the front matter, just make a comment, hey, if you're studying for these certifications, this book can help you and here are the other books in the set. Or just say, hey, the books are sold individually, but if you want the certification set, here's the package or the collection or the, or the bundle, I believe it's called. Uh, you can buy the bundle on, uh, on LeanPub for X dollars and it comes at a discount. Um, I think that would have made more sense. Obviously, money has a time value and you know it took me about six months to write that book. So let's assume I wrote 500 pages a month. If I had written a 500-page book every month for a total of six books, I could have been selling books every month. I would have had a new book, which would have probably corresponded with a jump in sales. It would have given me cash sooner to reinvest in the business or do other things with. Um, and basically, it would have just been a cleaner approach. And I think it would have driven increased sales on top of all that because people who only want technologies A, C, and D could just buy those three books and not have to make the two, two or $300 investment. So I think that that was a, it was a big, it, it was a mistake, but it's not one I regret because I didn't really know everything I just said. I didn't even think about that three years ago. Um, so it was, a, it was all great lessons learned. And with my blog, you know, I wrote a blog every week and it continuously got built. And it wasn't until later in the process that I thought about doing, uh, you know, putting it up on LeanPub. Uh, had I thought of that earlier, I probably would have published the book nine months ago and just kept updating it every week. I just didn't think to do that. Um, but I took a leaner approach and, you know, published short blogs every week uh, and then ultimately ended up putting it into a book, spending a day or two narrating, producing, uh, and putting it up on LeanPub. And, uh, you know, maybe next time if I decide to do it again next year, uh, you know, maybe I'll publish the book on day one and say, hey, here's the, here's the book with no blogs in it. And then every week it'll grow a little bit uh, and then customers can get those updates. So I'm still debating on what we're going to do next year. Um, but yeah, for all the authors out there, if you're thinking about working with LeanPub, you know, the keyword is lean, you know, publish early, publish often, use the tooling that LeanPub gives you. It's great. I love it. Um, get your book out there early, get your cash sooner. And generally it's going to have a positive impact on your business. Actually, I've just got that leads me to one more question that I wasn't planning on asking, but about your old book. So uh, you wrote a 3000 page book, all sort of as it were that you published all at once. How did you keep yourself motivated throughout the, the six months writing 500 pages a month? Because that is a, a Herculean effort. Yeah, it was, pr I would probably say it's the most difficult thing I've ever done. Um, it took you know, in, in addition to being a, you know, full-time employee, um, one thing that was different, of course, is that it was, it happened before I had my daughter. So there was a big, uh, big difference in time availability. Um, and my wife was also extremely supportive. Um, you know, she did every, you know, all the cooking, the lot, like every, you know, I didn't have to do anything other than get up, go to work and come home and write the book for five months, six months. So it was a difficult period. Um, the motivation I think was, this was a very new exam. And it was a lot of new topics and there were very few people in the world who knew it and there were even fewer people in the world who had passed this test and had lived to tell about it. So I figured, you know, not only could I be one of the first in the world, but I will most definitely be the first person uh, with a product uh, that covers these topics. So I saw, you know, from a business perspective, I saw a gap in the market and I said, I really like this stuff. I've been working with it for a long time. Um, you know, if I can, you know, go and do this and write a detailed technical guide to cover these topics, no one is going to be able to challenge me for at least a year. And that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, and for a long time, you know, I think it was the first, geez, I don't remember how many, I mean, it's a, it's a 3000 page book. Um, so a lot of, I don't think there are a lot of people that read it cover to cover and I didn't plan on, I didn't know how long it was going to be. It's not like I said, Hey, it's going to be 3000 pages. It just ended up that long, um, with hundreds of labs and stuff. But, uh, you know, even today it sells, you know, a couple every week. Um, obviously it's not like the beginning where I'd sell 10 in a day, but, um, uh, even today it still has relevance. There's still a lot of, um, technical goodness. It's still, uh, it's, it's still consumed today and 
the you know I you know that's a highly technical, super niche book, a uh, very long and detailed and relatively expensive. And then the new book, the Fifty Pieces of Gold book, is the completely orthogonal in every way. It's low cost. It's lightweight. It's non-technical. Um, and it was pu- it was published in kind of a lean-ish way. So I took two very different approaches. Um, and I think that's kind of a testament to the Lean Pub platform is that, yeah, you, you can do it either way and you can see success, uh, you know, either way. Um, but this new approach, I decided, you know, let me write about some of the things that people don't know about me and get these opinions out there so we can have kind of a conversation about you know, what other people think about business or what they think about investing or, you know, helping people open up about their own failures and lessons learned. And um, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you also recorded an audio version of the book. Um, audiobooks are the, the big thing nowadays. Um, you mentioned you spend a lot of time yourself listening to them. Uh, I, I sort of do the equivalent with, with other forms of audio myself. That's how I like to learn as well. And I was wondering for any, for this is the part of the, the podcast where we get into the weeds about the processes that self-published authors have. How did you record the book? So for the book, you know... Uh... I decided to keep it really simple. So I actually used Camtasia for it. So I use the same software I do for my recorded training. I use the same software. I just, I turned off the, you know, turn off the camera, turn off the screen uh, recording and just record the audio only. So use the same microphone I'm using now. Um, And my goal initially was I wanted to wake up and read one section every day. And typically I do this early in the morning because, you know, my voice is, it's uh, relatively deeper. It's smoother. It's a little bit less hoarse because I haven't been talking all day. So usually I'll be up, you know, 5.30 or 6. By 6.30, I'm recording. Uh, each section's about 20 to 30 minutes, and that takes about 30 to 40 just to do the recording. So I'd wake up early. I'd, I'd record a whole section, you know, which is 7 to 10 blogs. Um, you know, I go to work, get off work at 5, 5.30, uh, spend, a, you know, several hours, you know, editing the content you know, editing out the the coughs and the breaths and the throat clearings, making it a nice smooth transition, just like a professional audiobook should. Um, and then producing the individual clips. Uh, you know, putting the embedding the metadata in the clips. Um, I use an online service known as Alphonic. Um, you can buy, you know, <clears throat> ten bucks will buy you five hours worth. So I, you know, spend ten bucks, buy five hours worth or whatever. Uh, upload my MP3s. They come back uh, nice, kind of. Uh, audio leveled, noise canceled, all that good stuff. And then, you know, I'd put them in iTunes or whatever, make sure all the metadata showed up. Uh, I'd sync it to my iPhone and then I would listen to it, you know, either that night or later on. Um, Usually at night I'm doing chores, getting the baby ready for bed, helping out my wife, and I would listen to my own audiobook. So I did that for about six days in a row until the book was done. And just so we we get it clear, what was the name of the service that you used? It was uh, Allphonic. Um, so a u p h o n i c dot com, um, yeah, it's basically it's really simple. You just upload an MP3, and you know, obviously, you, you garbage in, garbage out. So you you want to provide a good sample, um, you know, uh, you know, not a lot of like nicks or bumps or anything. And then what it'll do is it'll do a little bit of extra kind of audio leveling. So you know, when you're reading, your face might move back and forth from the mic a little bit. You might get some some loud, some some really loud words, some quiet words. Uh, this kind of levels it out a little bit better. You know, for those of us who are uh, not professional narrators, which I am most definitely not, it's it's a very useful service. Um, I actually use it for all my recorded training. I just uh, you know separate the audio from the video. I use the service. It comes back. Uh, then I re-add it to the uh, video, and I end up with a very good audio. Uh, even using relatively inexpensive recording equipment. I mean, I'm, I'm using a $90 microphone. Uh, it sounds great, you know, to use that uh, service to give me much better sound without the the big capital investment. Um, so yeah, it was an overall not too bad. I would estimate that um, for the audio, recording and producing about two hours of audio, that probably took about 10 or maybe 10 or 15 hours total to do all of it. Uh, and then once I had it all on my iPhone, you know, I made sure all the titles were correct, make sure all the metadata is correct, listen to the whole thing. Um, I sent it to a friend of mine. Uh, he had a couple long flights coming up. I said, here, this will put you to sleep right away. Uh, just kidding. I think he enjoyed it. But, uh, you know, I sent it to him. I said, hey, give it a listen. Uh, let me know what you think. Um, he said it sounded good. Audio was smooth. He enjoyed the content. And, uh, you know, here we are. I, I added it as a, you know, extra package up on LeanPub. So people who like to listen with their ears, as I call it, which I do, and, and Len, you've said you do as well. Uh, there's that option as well. Yeah, thank you for sharing all those details. Stuff like that is uh, really, you know, gold to people who, who haven't done it before, getting to hear the, you know, the, the 
the real kind of like nitty gritty and the lessons learned along the way. You brought up speech volume leveling to those who are not initiated into recording, you know, audio for screencasts or for podcasts. Speech volume leveling is a really important thing uh, and it's really hard to do, uh, but there are tools out there that can help you do it. Um, I happen to use um, Audition, Adobe's, pro Adobe's product, uh, which is really fantastic for that. But I also use a, an app called Levelator, which someone suggested to me online because my initial podcasts were um, crap. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and that works really well for me. The last question we always like to ask on this podcast is, uh, in your use of LeanPub, is there anything that you've come across where you thought we could uh, fix something that's broken? Or if we could build any sort of fantasy feature for you, what would you ask us to build? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I remember I remember we talked about this. I can't remember what I said last time, but uh, the one thing that – the one thing I thought was – well, you you added it. Um, I don't remember if you had the uh, the different packages last time because I think the packages – yeah, the pack – I think the – you know, I, I know you realize you already have this, but I think the – the packages on the front page is just a huge advance because now you're really giving you know not only can users choose their own price but now they have the option of uh choosing you know which product they buy which which uh, variant of the product they buy it's kind of like buying a car you know do you want the extras or do you not want the extras and you know but, but you also get to choose your price so i thought that was really useful especially for uh, multimedia content like like my particular book where you can get text you can get text with audio um, you know, some other packages may even come with more. Um, I also thought, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, when I was doing, uh, when I was thinking about getting into training, I realized that LeanPub has this thing called courses now. And I admit I haven't really looked into it. I don't know what a LeanPub course actually is, but the fact that you have it tells me that you're thinking about the the multimedia space. And I think that's a great idea from a business perspective. Um, you know, in addition to text, there's audio, and now you can look at you know video content as well potentially or, or live training. So I think those are all great features to have kind of in this platform and especially if you're able to uh, integrate all the LeanPub tooling. So for example, if someone is developing a course and they make an update to the course, you know, does is that tooling similar to what we do for books? Because if it is, that's great because now people can, you know, do updates to their recorded training or whatever uh, with a similar workflow and similar semantics. I think that could be very powerful. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, I'll, I'll just to explain briefly. Um the packages feature that we've built allows authors to upload kind of arbitrary digital content. So it can be an MP3, it can be a video, it can be code, basically anything that you can put in a digital file, you can upload as an extra associated with your book, and then you can create packages. So that package could be, um, you know, the first package could be just the book. The second package could be the book plus the audio. The third package could be the book plus the audio plus the code sample and then you could even make a fourth that's like book plus audio plus code, code sample plus video and then you can assign different prices to those and they're all presented in a clear way to uh, your potential customers so that they can choose what package they want to buy when it comes to courses this is a you know i could talk for a very long time about that um, but the idea is that yes you, you can write you can actually write a course an online course like a mooc and a book in the same document writing in markua are markup syntax so it's that it's those courses are written the same way and what you do is you can basically write like content like a some text and then you can have a quit an exercise that people can take for practice and then the quiz that people get marked on and in the end if they pass uh they can get a certificate so that's proof and so the part of the theory there is that we think that you know this is kind of just a good product in itself but one thing we realize is that so many lean pub books are in a sense courses themselves and so what, what, what happens when you read a book? You've got no kind of social proof that you've learned anything. So we think it's actually a natural extension of, uh, or of the life of a LeanPub book to actually have an accompanying course. So if someone finishes a book, then they can buy a course and take that course. And when they pass it, they have proof of what they've learned that they can present to, you know, employees or employers or clients or, or what have you. So that's the idea behind that, that product. So Anyway, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about that a little bit. I uh, really appreciate that. Um, sure. And uh, thank you very much for your new book and for taking the time to do this interview. I think our listeners are going to be really, uh, are going to enjoy it very much. Uh, and thank you for being a Lean Pub author. Yep. Thanks, Len. I, you know, I love doing business with you guys. Uh, I think you have a great platform and I'm looking forward to many more books. Thanks very much. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.